This is HRT, a podcast featuring interviews with HR leaders, researchers, students, and influencers. HRT takes trending topics and research in human resources, steeps them for 30 minutes or less, and leaves you with fresh brewed ideas on how to drive high-performing, inclusive organizations and create meaningful work experiences. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD, the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University. Hi, everyone. Welcome to HRT. I'm your host, Bethany Adams. I love HRT, but truth be told, I am still a coffee drinker. Today's episode is our last episode for season two of HRT. This year, 2020, while certainly a crazy one, is actually the 40th anniversary of the Villanova HRD program. The HRD program has been educating HR leaders for 40 years. 40 years. Think about how the profession of HR has evolved over those 40 years. We have moved from personnel management to being a strategic partner in the business with a seat at the table. Yes, I said it, with a seat at the table. And through that evolution, the research in the field has evolved dramatically. On today's episode, we will be chatting with Rick Jacobs. Rick is an I.O. psychology researcher from Penn State University who has been in the field for those 40 years and seen the research evolve. Rick has been a mentor to several of the Villanova HRD I.O. researchers that we have within our faculty, and we are excited to share his work with you today. When Rick began his career in psychology at UCLA, there was no industrial and organizational psychology, and he found that this was his passion. So I began by asking Rick to talk about some of the major changes that he's seen in our profession over those 40 years and the biggest things that have changed in the research itself that has impacted our profession of HR. Wow, that's a broad question. And the first thing I can say is it's gotten a lot more complicated. When I started doing research uh, back in the early 70s, it was really the case that we, we were interested in simple things like, does job satisfaction relate to job performance? How do we more accurately select people who will do well in a particular type of job? And it was driven by empiricism. That is, we're, we're going to do this study, and whatever results we get, we will find it either supportive or refuting what we think. Now, what I see, and this is not, I'm, I'm not saying it's, it's a change for the better or for the worse. I think it's for both. We see these very complicated theoretical models that are hard to operationalize because they're so complicated. And sometimes we get conflicting results where I think the underlying truth is consistency. So I, I think this, this notion of moving from very simple ideas to very complicated ones is what's happened in the field, from empiricism to lots of theory. That's at least going on in the research world. And the research studies, uh, to get a study published now, I mean, I would, back in the early days, I'd come up with an idea, I'd do the study in six months, I'd write up the paper, I'd send it in for 
publication, I'd get one review back, or I'd get my reviews back, and I'd make one iteration, uh, make some changes, and it'd get published. Now we go through three or four iterations of You're publication. Making all the researchers so jealous right now <laughs> in the current world. <laughs> well, it, it's so funny because I've been around for so long, you know, it, it's a big deal for people to get a publication in Journal of Applied Psychology, probably the top journal in our field. Well, I have lots of Journal of Applied Psychology publications. Look where they are. They're back in the 70s and 80s. And if I were to do it again, it would have taken me two years to publish something that took me six months to publish. So I think there's that. And corresponding to that, which I think is really, really interesting, is what we're trying to do in organizations has gotten more complicated. The problems have gotten more complicated. The, the, the whole practice has gotten more complicated. And I, I think that's, that's really an interesting kind of problem. Fortunately, we have ideas about how to study those things that help us. Uh, the, the theories are actually helpful when it comes to approaching the kinds of things that we're now facing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The world of work has just gotten more complicated. So that means our research gets more complicated, more theoretical, and like you said, becomes harder to apply, which is not great for the profession, but certainly I think we're, we're finding ways to make it work. An example of, of the changes is right now, uh, one of, a couple of my clients have said, how can we better engage remote workers? So when I started this business, I would have said, what's a remote worker? <laughs> so that's the kind of, I mean, it really is when you, when you take this 40 year view, wow, some of the problems we're facing weren't even thought about back then. And, and it's not just remote, you know, we didn't think about cultural competence back 40 years ago. We yep. should have, we didn't. It's a very important variable now. How do we pick people? And going back to my emergency medical technician example, how do we pick people to be emergency medical technicians who can do the first aid and, and medical care, who can lift people, and who when they come across somebody who's very different from them, interacts in a proper way. So all of a sudden, this selection problem became very, very complicated. So it's kind of, it, it's, it's wonderfully challenging and it's changed quite a bit. Yeah, I like that you say wonderfully challenging. Yes, it definitely is. So tell us a little bit about some of your consulting work, some of the companies that you've worked with or some stories that you have. Wow, there's so many stories. It's, it's, it's fun to think about. One of my favorite studies, it was a consulting project, and it turned into a publication, and it was a really good project to use as a teaching example. In the mid-1990s, I was hired by the American Public Transit Association. They were looking for a better way to select bus drivers, bus operators as they call them. And they had a tool that was developed in the 70s and it was pretty good, but it was outdated. It was actually a video test where you would watch a video of a bus situation and as a bus driver applicant, you would tell what you would have done out of four things. Oh, the problem was that in the 90s, uh, the video had people getting on the bus who were wearing bell-bottom pants. <laughs> so it, out, it dated itself, and they thought there were better ways to do it. So I wound up being fortunate enough to get the contract, my consulting firm, to build this new task for the American Public Transit Association, which they would then make available to all of their all the people across the country and actually in North America who are members. So SEPTA is a member of, of the American Public Transit Association. So is CATA, our little local bus company here. And you know, everywhere from Los Angeles to New York to El Paso, Texas, all these cities use APTA tools to select. So we built this, we did this study to see if we could actually 
create something that predicted bus driver performance, then we actually did the study. We, we studied about 1,100 bus drivers across the country. We got their records over the last three years of how often they, you know, their attendance records, their safety records, and to some extent, although not very convincingly, their customer service records. <laughs> uh, and then we compared that to the scores they achieved on this experimental test. It's what's called a concurrent validation study. We basically took current employees and had them take the test as if they were applicants and then looked at how well they did the job. And it turns out that this little test, I won't even call it survey because there weren't right or wrong answers, but people who scored better on our survey, scored higher on our survey more acceptably toward the job, actually did the job better. They were there more often and they had fewer accidents. So what we, kind of pieces were you testing within the test? Like what, what kind of questions were asked? That's a great question. It was really important that any industrial psychologist approaches this and say, what do you have to do on the job? What are the key elements of the job? I talk about competency models or job analysis. We studied the job. We studied the job for six months. I went to all these different places, rode on the buses, talked to bus drivers, talked to supervisors. In Seattle, they even let me drive a bus in the training oh, yard. fun. It was fascinating. I, I wasn't very good. <laughs> like hands-on uh, research. Yes, you have to do it just to get a feel for it, thinking, gosh, it's hard driving this big bus. And then you have people asking you questions. Um, no, I, I don't think I could ever do this job. Anyway, it turns out... hire me for that. It turns out that after about six months, I went back to the Department of Transportation who was funding this study for APTA. And I said, we've been studying bus drivers for six months. And to be a bus driver, to be a good bus driver, you have to show up and be on time. You have to be safe and you have to be nice. And they said... It took you six months to figure that out? <laughs> and I said, well, I, I have more to that. And then I gave them a, a list of, oh, about 185 things that bus drivers do that you could basically put into those three big buckets. I said, okay, if that's what bus drivers have to do, let's look at measures of attendance, you know, and timeliness. Would they exist in our discipline? So we put together a battery of timeliness attendance type questions. Then we moved on to safety, attention to detail, those kinds of things put a bunch of questions on, on that, and then finally customer service, customer satisfaction, put a bunch of questions like that. I think the experimental test battery had several hundred questions. And eventually we narrowed that down to 80 questions that actually identified whether somebody was going to show up for work and whether they were safe. And from that, we were able to look at actual data and show that you could save a lot of money. It's something called utility analysis. Mm -hmm. By using this test, to select bus drivers, you will save about seven days of absence per year. And for every 100 bus drivers you hire, 16 accidents. And then we could attach money or dollar values to that. And we convinced about 30 or 35 bus properties right out of the box to use our, our instrument. To date, they're still using it. And we've tested over a quarter of a million bus driver applicants. That's amazing. You know, it's interesting because if you think about the job of a bus driver, I, it probably hasn't changed all that drastically since the 90s when you put it in place. So it would make sense that the test would still apply today. Unlike some jobs that I feel like are changing so fast that a study like that and having a test like that might be outdated by the time you even get it in place. Yeah, and, and actually uh, you, you've, hit, you've hit an important point uh, that most of the big projects that we do are for jobs that are relatively stable over time and have lots of lots of applicants. Yeah. So that's where you can really make a difference and it will stay for a long time. The job of a bus driver in many ways 
has gotten technologically easier. The buses are more efficient. They're easier to drive. And remember, well, you won't remember, you're too young, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> we used to get on the bus and have to, in the early days, give money and the bus driver would make change while they were you know, dealing with the bus. I've now, on two buses like that. Yeah, but not very many. And you usually have to go to Europe and they're even phrasing it out. Now, the big deal about buses is to make riders feel comfortable not knowing what to expect the first time they get on the bus so that there's that focus on customer service and, and customer information. But the, the job's pretty, pretty much the same. You can make the same argument for police officers and firefighters. Uh, technologies help them do their job in different ways. But the basic job is police officers walk around saying, what's wrong here? Firefighters put out fires and they help people. So I mean, and so do police officers. So the jobs, the, the key characteristics, the main important points of the job remain the same. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. A few minutes ago, you were talking about cultural competency. And with a police officer, right, the job itself hasn't changed. But I do have to wonder, especially given the state of some of the things that have happened in our country, that cultural competency would come into play and be even more important in a job like that, given kind of the work that they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the, the variety of people that they see from different backgrounds and their, their need to be able to not only understand what they're saying in terms of language, but in terms of intent. Yeah. So it really is important. And we, we see more and more organizations looking to consulting firms like mine to say, well, how can you help us with things like cultural competence? How can you help us with teamwork? Yeah. You know, we, did, we didn't think about teamwork 40 years ago. But it's, a, it's a key part of our, our workplace now. Yeah, absolutely. And it's becoming even more important. Just collaboration in general, maybe not even independent teams, but collaboration between jobs and how one job affects the other. Absolutely. I'm curious. So tell me more. So the bus driver story is amazing. I know there have to be other amazing stories. So give us some other examples from your work. We also did a project that might be interesting. Since we do a lot of work with police departments across the country, we were asked a few years back to help the country, and it's actually two islands, it's actually more than two islands, the big islands are Trinidad and Tobago, to help them with a more modern approach to police promotions in their police system. And that was absolutely fascinating. In one case, they asked us to help them select the new commissioner of police and one of the commissioner's deputies at the same time. We had to do all sorts of interesting things about making sure that whoever was selected for commissioner could work with the person who was designated as the deputy commissioner. And we did a worldwide recruitment. We had to get, we got people from all over the world. And in that case, two gentlemen from Canada wound up taking the job in Trinidad and Tobago. So that was a really interesting international component where Trinidad said, you guys have been doing this for a long time. We think you know how to do it properly. Will you come down here and help us walk through the process? And we also did it for some of their mid-level managerial positions. So it was really fascinating, but it was using all the tools that we usually use in, in, our, in our process of uh, promoting in police departments. So I'm curious, in the selection process, what things did you try and measure or determine to determine whether or not these two people would be able to work well together? I would think that would be a really interesting and relevant piece of information for organizations right now when they're looking to promote new managers or senior leaders. How are they going to work with the other managers that are already in place? Things like that. Yeah, well, one of the, well, I don't think there's a good test for that. I think what we did made the most sense. We brought down 10 candidates for commissioner and 10 candidates for deputy commissioner. 
and we had each of the deputy commissioner candidates meet with each of the commissioner candidates. And the commissioner candidates then designated who they would prefer to work with, who they could work with, and who they wouldn't work with. So if we were going to pick this commissioner, we would not pick this deputy if he was on the latter list or she was on the latter list. So it really was an interpersonal judgment by the commissioner, which was the lead position. Yeah, that's really interesting. And good that they're making those decisions, I guess, at the same time. That becomes a challenge in organizations as you're not always replacing both at the same time. So you can't determine kind of that collaborative work environment. Yeah, if I'm remembering correctly, at the time, Trinidad had two or three deputy commissioners and only one was vacant. So not only, I mean, so we could do the best job possible. And then I I think there might have been two other deputy commissioners were there. They could have subverted the whole effort as well. But we brought them in to be part of the process early on to help us. So I, I I think we minimized the likelihood that that would happen. That's interesting. Okay, so you have published dozens of pieces throughout your career. And we've talked a little bit about some of the studies that you've worked on and some of the research. Any other favorite research studies or projects that you've worked on or that you've been a part of? The other studies that I'll mention, I did a study in 1998 with Paul Teslick, who's just a terrific guy. He's a professor at the University of Buffalo right now, I think. Anyway, Paul and I wrote a thought paper. We cited some research. We didn't, I don't think there was any original research in there about experience and the fact that as a discipline, IO psychology does a pretty poor job of measuring experience. You see an ad, three years of experience. What does that really mean? And in as a substitute for experience, we generally use seniority or tenure. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between writing down how long your butt's been parked in a seat and how much you've actually learned during that time. And, I, and so the paper was all about, can we move toward a more effective way of measuring experience? I still think it's an interesting question and one that hasn't been resolved. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. If I've sat in a job for eight years, that doesn't mean that I've grown, developed, or contributed. It just means I've been there for eight years. So I remember years ago, our our good friend Jerry Brandon was applying for a job at PSEA to be the head of human resources. And he was told that he didn't have experience. And uh, Jerry's a very clever guy. So what did he say? He said, well, okay, let's break that down. What do you mean by experience? And they said, well, you don't have any negotiating experience. He said, why do you say that? They said, well, because you've never been in this type of position. He said, but I've negotiated a lot. I was the treasurer of our church. I had to negotiate there. I have small boys. I negotiate with them every day. So he, he was able to say, this you know, sounds this is like the Jerry I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's this broad idea of experience. But when you break it down, there are some variables that we can measure that are job relevant. You know, yeah. you need to be able to negotiate. Show me you can negotiate. You need to be able to make the hard call. That's something. So you can find these this evidence elsewhere. There's a, a really fine I, IO psychologist named Lietta Hugh. And Lietta Hugh created a behavioral accomplishment record where you write down. So we create some job relevant dimensions. These are things that this job requires. Maybe there are four of them. Give me an example of when you have done that, what were the circumstances, why you think it was effective, and who can validate what you said. And if you have four or five of those and you read about 10 candidates, you're probably going to get a good read on their experience. So there, there are ways that this can happen effectively, but the whole idea of experience is interesting. So I guess my last question is probably a really difficult one, especially for someone with 
as much experience and as much knowledge in this area as you have. But I am curious what findings you know about from your research or others' research that you feel like maybe HR is missing or we don't get yet or we need to know about to kind of think about in our organizations? I think HR is missing it, but it's our fault that they're missing it. And I think one of the most important messages we can give is much of what we do, whether it be a selection program or a new performance appraisal process or a new team building exercise or whatever it is, an assessment center, it has value. And what we haven't done as a discipline enough is to show that value. So back to the bus driver study, we were able to show that for every dollar you spend on the selection tool, you save $20 in absence. Huh. Well, that's a pretty power. So, so translation is, uh, Bethany, I'm going to get, you give me a dollar and I'll give you $20 for every dollar you give me. How many dollars will you give me? Uh, you would go to the bank and borrow. That's right. <laughs> but we haven't, we haven't made that utility argument often enough or strongly enough. It's true. Not for everything we do, but I think it's true for a lot. And coupled with that utility argument is the idea that when, when utility theory started to be studied, there was an assumption that bad performance costs us as much as good performance saves us. Hmm. So it's a symmetric distribution. That's not true. And back to my buddy, Jerry Brandon, he, he did a study with me years ago that said it's about double. It costs us twice as much to have a poor employee as it saves us to have a good employee. So that non-symmetric nature says, wow, we should be looking for good employees, but we should also be looking to avoid the bad placement. Yeah. So is the bad hire just that that's what we should be focusing on more in our organizations is avoiding that bad hire than just, I found the best hire for this job. You will spend a lot of time and be largely unsuccessful, always looking for the best person. You need to, we need to get over the fact that we need the best person. We need good people. Finding the best person might, you might identify the best person and your job can't attract them. And that, that's, that's a shame. So, and that happens all the time. You know, we make a job offer, somebody turns it down. But I think the lesson from utility analysis and some of the study is don't be afraid to disqualify people. Getting the wrong person out of the system is really, really important. Yeah. So I think that's, so those findings of utility, what we do makes a difference. Don't always look for the best person. Make sure you avoid the, the person who's going to be a disaster. Those are important, important kinds of outcomes that I've seen over the years. The other thing is that, that I love is that right now, we talked about it earlier, our job should be thinking about the concepts and the variables that drive success in organizations and finding way to, ways to measure those things. So if you think about what we've already talked about, cultural competence, cultural flexibility, whatever you want to call it, there are lots of different names for the similar concepts. We should be refining our ways of assessing that. Teamwork, another thing that's really important in most jobs. Working remotely and staying engaged. All these things are challenges now that, that I think are, are really important for the scholars of the future. I, I'm gonna ride off into the sunset shortly, so somebody else should deal with these. <laughs> well, we, ha we have some students ready to pick up the research for you. I love it, I love it. All right, everyone, he's calling on you. To all of our Villanova HRD students and all of the HR researchers and IO researchers out there, Rick has given you a mission. Find the things that drive success in our organizations and find ways to measure them. And I'll add to this challenge. 
Then translate your findings into ways that practitioners can immediately put to use in their organizations. I've talked about this over and over again in this podcast, but translating research into practice is so important if we are truly going to practice evidence-based HR in our organizations. Okay, everyone, this concludes season two of HRT. For those of you who have been listening since the beginning of this season, we are excited to once again offer SHRM recertification credits for your listening. The code for this season is 20-UPZ3G. That's 20-U as in up, P as in playful, Z as in zebra, three, G as in girl, 20-UPZ3G. All right, everyone, stay tuned for our previews for season three. Season three, we are going to focus on inclusion and diversity as a theme for all the episodes. I may be bringing in some guest co-hosts to help me through the season, and we are excited about sharing these important topics at this time. The HRD program recently launched a new graduate certificate in inclusion and diversity strategy, and this certificate is one of the first strategically focused four-credit graduate-level certificates available both on campus or fully online to students working at any level within an organization, entry, senior, executive, for an HR or even non-HR background. We are so excited about this launch and hope that season three of HRT will be able to bring some of the pieces of this inclusion and diversity strategy curriculum to all of you. So until next season, remember whatever you are drinking, coffee, tea, or something a little bit stronger, I hope it leads you to fresh brewed ideas that will help make work better for all of us. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of HRT. As your thoughts from today's episode steep, share with us what you are brewing using the hashtag HRT. That's hashtag H-R-T-E-A. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD. To learn more about Villanova University's graduate programs in human resource development and for all the links and notes from today's episode, visit the Villanova HRD blog at villanovahrd.com.